0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the newest episode of the Relentless Forward podcast. This episode is brought to you by GI Associates. GI Associates is one of the largest and best gastroenterology clinics in the southeastern United States. Uh, The partnership between Run Strong and GI Associates is born of a common interest in promoting colon cancer awareness and the importance of colon cancer screening. As a colon cancer survivor, I can tell you that having a colonoscopy is not nearly as bad as having colon cancer itself so it's super important that if you're eligible and that means if you're over 45 now you're eligible to get your colon screening or you can get it earlier if you have a history of colon cancer in your family colon cancer is a very preventable disease if screenings are done on time so if you are in the Mississippi area or the southeastern United States you want to go to GI Associates call 601-355-1234 Tell them Runstrong sent you or Jeremy sent you and if you're not in the southeastern United States but you want to be referred to a great GI doctor in your area call the same number 601-355-1234 and ask them to put you in touch with someone in your area uh, that can give you the same service that GI associates would give to you locally the important thing is is that if you're eligible you get screened for colon cancer and this episode is also brought to you by ultra shoes if you're not familiar with ultra running Um, you can go to www.runstrongshop.com check out all the uh, latest and greatest models of ultra shoes. At RunStrong we've chosen to sell ultra shoes because we think it's the best shoe out there and the reason we think that it's the best shoe out there regardless of model is because it's uh, it's a natural shoe. It puts your foot in a more natural uh, position. Um, They have the trademark foot shape and zero drop Um, designs they have um, a ton of shoes both for road and trail running they even have some casual shoes that look pretty good so if you're interested in ultra shoes i got a good deal for you today go to www.runstrongshop.com you get free shipping from runstrong once you pick out a pair of shoes that you want so use discount code podcast all caps just the word podcast and you'll get free shipping on any pair of ultra shoes um, from www.runstrongshop.com. So check that out. Get your Ultra Shoes. Let's see what else is going on. We recently, last weekend, um, today is October 9th, and a couple days ago we um, helped at the Vineyard Church of Jackson. We put on a, uh, helped put on a 5K called the Run Against Traffic 5K. And it's important because it was battling um, human sex trafficking happening right here in the state of Mississippi. It was a great event. We had a great turnout. And then the day after that, the, a bunch of us from the Run Strong training and coaching programs volunteered at the Ryan Man Triathlon. Um, it's a 70.3 or a half Ironman. that takes place here in, um, in Jackson, Mississippi. It's an amazing event. It was named after a young boy named Ryan Lasortz who sadly lost, um, uh, who ran out of time in his fight against cancer a few years ago. And it's been a really powerful, powerful event. Um, this was last year the Ryan Man Triathlon. They're rebranding it as Deep South Triathlon, but the guys that put it on do a really great job. It's still still going to benefit um, children. And the Ryan Man Foundation is still going to be um, going on and benefiting um, the Children's Hospital of Mississippi and, and helping kids who are battling cancer. So a bunch of us from the training group went out, we had an aid station, and we cheered on um, all the racers on an extremely hot day. Some of our own athletes, Um, participated in the race, Charlie Williams um, uh, was on a relay team, ran the half marathon portion, Uh, Bobby Rush, one of our coaching clients, had a great race, did really well, and Denise Sweeney um, did a great job as well, and uh, we were proud of both of them for battling through an incredibly hot and difficult day, it's uh, October, early October weather in Mississippi is really a crapshoot, it can either be really cold or really hot, and unfortunately, For the racers, it was really hot this year, but it was a great race. We had a good time out there. Um, If you want to check out more about our training groups and training programs, you can check that out on runstrongshop.com. Just look under training, or you can go to our website and check our other website and check www.runstrong.fit. That'll give you a little more information as well. And from either of those, you can get in touch with me at at jeremy@runstrong.fit and we, um, you can ask any questions you, you want, and hopefully you uh, can come join us for a run sometime if you're in our area. If you're not in our area, or if you are, our guest today is going to be um, awesome for you, and I think you're going to enjoy it. You don't even have to be an endurance athlete to enjoy it, There's probably, some, although that's probably who it's geared towards the most, but you're probably going to really like it. Our guest today is a guy by the name of Matt Fitzgerald. And Matt Fitzgerald is an incredibly well known. He's a former editor of Competitor Magazine and Triathlon Magazine. He's written for Runner's World, Outside Magazine, and a bunch of other publications. Matt has also written about 25 books about endurance sports. His most recent book is 80-20 Triathlon, which is sort of a triathlon training um, book. He's previously written 80-20 Running. He's written a book called The Iron War, which was about the um, uh, great one of the greatest races ever at the Ironman Triathlon from years ago. Um, he's written a book called The Racing Weight and just a ton of other books, but he's also written one of my favorite books, which is called How Bad Do You Want It? And How Bad Do You Want It kind of covers the psychobiological model um, or the connection between mind and body and training. And I think a lot of what uh, that book talks about can be translated into real life as well. So it's not just for endurance training. It's not just for athletes. The first half of the podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about 80-20 training principles and and sort of how to approach that. And so that's a little more technical for those of you that aren't endurance athletes. But fast forward a little bit, if if that's not for you, listen to the second half where we talk about his book called How Bad Do You Want It? It's really, really awesome. You can find more about Matt at www.mattfitzgerald.org. We really appreciate him coming on the on the show. Matt is a huge name in the endurance sports industry so getting him on this show was just absolutely unexpected but it was really awesome. So uh, without further ado, Matt Fitzgerald Matt Fitzgerald, welcome to the show.
1: Great to be with you.
0: Great to have you so I uh, we talked a little before the show but, uh, I didn't tell you this part. I had, When I started this podcast about oh six, seven, eight months ago, I sat down and I made a list of the 10 or 12 people I really wanted to have on the podcast. And these were people that I had met through various ways, various methods in life, or who, had, who were authors, who had written books that really influenced my life, and you were on the list. And so I'm, I'm working my way slowly through the list, and I, so I really am, I'm excited to have you on the show, and I appreciate it.
1: I'm honored to be on that list.
0: All right, good deal. So Matt, will you give us a little of, um, just give our listeners a little of your background, how you got into endurance sports and coaching and training and how you started writing books on the subject.
1: Sure, Um, I'm talking to you right now from from California. Um, I've been here for more than 20 years, but I grew up mostly in New Hampshire, um, an East Coaster. And um, my dad was a runner when I was a kid. So I developed an interest in running through him um, and my dad is also a writer, um, and I, I caught the writing bug as well um, through his influence uh, at an early age. And so, you know, I ran in high school. I was, um, I always wanted to be a writer. Um, I didn't necessarily expect to write about, you know, running and endurance sports and stuff. But you know, when you have two passions, and I mean, you have to write about something. And, and you know, I, I came out of college. You know, right around the time, you know, Oprah Winfrey runs a, a marathon for crying out loud. You know, just it went from something like when my dad was doing it in the early mid '80s, it was like hardcore, you know, and then suddenly everyone's doing it, and then you you could, you could actually make a living, you know, telling people how to run. <laughs> so yeah, I just I just kind of fell into it. I love it, you know, and I've been doing it for a very long time now.
0: It's funny how those things go in. Uh, they go in cycles a little bit. We had a. Uh... In September 2014, they introduced uh, the first inaugural uh, Ironman in Chattanooga, and in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and we're in Jackson, Mississippi, so they can sit, we're five hours away, but they considered us a local triathlon. And that, being so close, just inspired... So We had about 60 or 70 people from our little community that all signed up and did and trained for and, and accomplished Ironman Chattanooga. And that was something that for most of these people, for whatever reason, had previously seemed so ridiculous and impossible and not even possible but just the proximity and kind of the whole, whole mass hysteria of everybody getting fired up about it and next thing you know all these people you wouldn't think could do it including myself are tackling an iron man
1: yeah it's a it's a powerful lesson there um you know for, for me it was just having someone in the home you know my dad never once told me to run you know he just ran and i wanted to be like him so i i made my own choice you know to start running um, that's you know that's kind of how it works you just uh, you inspire but you need you need something an example you know it, it, it can't be too remote otherwise it's you know I'm glad Neil Armstrong walked on the moon but like I'm not going to
0: <laughs> well, you never know you've accomplished a lot you, and,
1: <laughs> you're young don't
0: sell yourself short <laughs> so I thought what we talked about first a little bit I'll give you a little background on um, on myself with and why I was so interested in having you in the podcast was Years ago, I read, not that many years ago, because the book has been out that long, but I read 80-20 running, um, and that really resonated with me um, because I had started coaching and training athletes on kind of a part-time basis on the side in 2012, and I started seeing people who were working way too hard too often. They were getting burned out. They are getting tired. In fact, a lot of the people that did that Ironman in 2014 that we talked about then never did another thing after that, and I always wondered if you know what what caused that you know cuz i felt very sustainable i still do I, I i think i've sort of i think i when i started running about 10 years ago i kind of started looking into the best way to train and not get overtrained and injured and all that kind of stuff so that's why i really started with 80 trying 8020 80, 20 running um and why i was so great and then recently you published 8020 triathlon i believe just in september yeah. Um, which is kind of a, I'll say a follow-up, but it's probably kind of a, a companion to 80/20 running. So, let's get started on that and talk about what is the 80/20 principle or concept, and how did you come to it? And can you just tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Um, so, you know, there, there's an 80/20 principle that's familiar to you know a lot of people in business. Um, this is actually not that. <laughs> the the 80/20 in endurance sports refers to the optimal way to break down the intensity of your training you know intensity is one of just the the core variables um of endurance training you know they're such simple sports right you know it's not like you know football or something with a million different plays and stuff you know for for running and, and triathlon it's, um, you know, frequency, how often you train, duration, how long you train, and intensity, like how hard you go, That that those are the ingredients. You know, you, you make up all the workouts out of those three ingredients. And, um, you know, research has shown that uh, people tend to improve the most when they do about 80% of their training at a low intensity. Um, and, you know, there's some physiology that, Determined, you know, what is low intensity, but just leave it at that for now that you know Most of you know four out of every five minutes you spend running should be at a, at a low intensity now Four out of five isn't five out of five you you have to push yourself sometimes and that's just as important but what most people do when they're unguided is they spend uh, half or more of their time at a moderate intensity not a low intensity and you get something out of that you know it's not like you explode into a million tiny pieces just because you're doing too much of a moderate intensity but you don't improve nearly as much as you would um, if you did that 80-20 thing
0: so what are the main benefits of training with this method
1: yeah well I mean you know you can sort of back into it by looking at the drawbacks of, of the moderate intensity run which is what the vast majority of people are doing but when you do that um you uh, the analogy I make in that book is is to it's similar to being chronically mildly sleep-deprived like if you get say you know half an hour too little sleep every night you know you're it's not gonna kill you but it will compromise how you function and how you feel but it might do so in a way that you just don't even notice You, you know you just you don't even realize you could feel better and that you could think faster. Um, and and only when you start getting a little more sleep, there's like an awakening. It's like, wow, I still feel so fresh. I don't need that you know third cup of coffee at mid-afternoon. Um, switching from the moderate intensity rush. <laughs>
0: I'm drinking coffee as we speak, so maybe. doesn't mean you need it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, yeah, so the same thing happens you know, when you're in that moderate intensity rut, you, you, you create this um, sort of low grade burden of fatigue that your body never fully processes. So you're just carrying a little bit of fatigue that again, you might not even be aware of from one run to the next run. And so you never run quite as well as you might. You never recover as well as you might. You don't actually adapt to the training as well as you might. And if you just kind of put the brakes on yourself 80% of the time and then, you know, really push yourself, get a 20%, you just start, you know, feeling better. Um, you, you can actually, you know, sometimes it's a little hard psychologically to slow down, you know, because it, like any habit, there's a little inertia to it, but you know, you just start feeling fresher and then when it's time to run hard, you can really crush those workouts that you used to slog through before and,
0: and that's really what you find when you, when you make the leap. And I think for my experience with it really was if I, I look back at my training logs and I, and I just could look back in, at, the, at my overall training concepts. In 2015, I was really struggling a lot and there were various factors that were causing me to struggle, but I kept comparing myself to two years before when I had gotten my marathon PR, my training was great and everything was wonderful. And so I kept working a little bit harder all the time, and instead of getting better, I just got worse and worse and plateaued, and got frustrated, and probably even a little, I guess, overtrained or under recovered, as Mike would say. Um, But so, you mentioned something that uh, I can't remember exactly how you said it, but my question is, how have you know how have websites like Strava affected? if you, I mean, you probably don't know this for sure, but how do you think websites like Strava have affected how people train? I tell my athletes all the time, I can see their performances on Strava. They're not, most of the ones I coach are not as fast as me in any distance, but their easy training runs are actually just the same pace as mine or faster. And I think I'm going truly aerobically, I'm going pretty easy, but I think there's some kind of effect in there that they you know, they're seeing the downstrava. They're seeing it in social media. Do you think that has an impact on how people train?
1: Yeah, I, I I think so. Though it's it's a little bit of a redundancy because even when people are on their own, they they naturally will. Um, you know, there's actually studies where they do this. They'll, they'll have you know scientists will have some people come into uh, an exercise science lab where there's a bunch of stationary bikes, and they'll say get on the bike and ride for 20 minutes. And they don't tell them how fast to ride, it's just like fill 20 minutes with pedaling. And very, very consistently, people will naturally choose an intensity for those 20 minutes, excuse me, that is at moderate intensity, a little bit above what, what's known as the ventilatory threshold, which is where scientists put the borderline between low and moderate intensity. It's, uh, And people just tend to do that kind of by feel. Um, and, and so they're already doing it. There's this, this natural magnetism to that intensity. But then when you add social factors on top of that, you know, even before Strava, when you had like group bike rides, you know, usually it's the fastest guy that dictates the pace of the group, right? And, and you know, it's not everyone slowing down for the slowest guy. In masters swim workouts, you're around other people, and you hate being in the slow lane. So you. You work maybe harder than you should day after day to try and graduate to the next lane. And so the social media stuff is just, it's the next level of, of that social influence where you, now, now suddenly even if you are all alone and you don't have to show off for anyone, you do have to show right. off because people are going to see your data on Strava. <laughs> so yeah, there's there's all these barriers. I, I, I made a list in, in the new book, Eighty Twenty 20 Triathlon. There's one chapter I, I identified no fewer than eight factors that kind of keep people stuck in that moderate intensity rut. Uh, and that seems, you know, pretty depressing, but they're all easy to overcome. It just, you have to be aware of them, and then you have to be intentional about, uh, you know, breaking that habit.
0: So if someone wanted to be intentional about breaking that habit, how do they go about um, finding what is in that 80%, like what effort level? How do they How do they identify that?
1: Yeah, so, <laughs> you know... <laughs> One of those barriers is something I call intensity blindness. And and intensity blindness is simply this. Like if I take the average recreational runner and tell that person to go run at low intensity for five miles, they'll go out and run at moderate intensity for five miles, come back and say, I did just what you told me, coach, because they don't know the difference, you know, simply by feel. So um, most runners just they can't trust feel. Uh, so you have to, you have to to, like actually quantify what low intensity means for you. And it's not the same for everyone. You know, it's your physiology and that requires testing. Um, you know, there are various ways you can measure intensity, you know, perceived effort is one and it's a good one, but only once you've calibrated it against something objective. So you can use pace, you can use heart rate, you know, they even have running power meters now. Um.
0: Traditionally, even
1: though you know scientists put the border between low and moderate intensity at this ventilatory threshold, traditionally all the tests out there are for something called the lactate threshold, which is—I know it's a lot of, a lot of words. You you know these words already, but maybe not everyone listening. But um, you know, so there's standard protocols you can go through. You can also use a race result. You know, if you're if you've done a, you know a recent local 5K, you can sort of use that to get a a good estimate of your uh, lactate threshold. Um, And from that, I have a a calculator on my website, 8020endurance.com, where you can plug in a recent race time or do one of these, you know, um, sort of do-it-yourself field tests for lactate threshold. Just plug in your result, and then it will calculate zones for you. In my system, if you're in zone one or two, you're at low intensity, and and that's where you want to be. So, you know, step one is just Determining exactly what low intensity means for you. Step two is monitoring as you go out and train. Good intentions aren't going to do it. You know, you need to, you know, wear a heart rate monitor or you know, a, you know a GPS watch or something that allows you to track your intensity. Because if you aren't paying attention, you'll just drift right back. It's sort of like meditating, where you're supposed to empty your head of all thoughts, and like that works for about 12 seconds, and then you're making shopping lists in your head. Right. <laughs> It's, it's kind of like that. You need something to keep you honest, um, and that's how you do it, you know, and then, then the idea is to actually follow a training plan that balances intensities in, in the right way. Um, so you know, I have a bunch of them in, in my, my books and online, um, and, and so there the guesswork is sort of removed for you, you know, you know what your zones are and then you know, you know, maybe you're training for a half marathon or something, you start following an eighty twenty half marathon plan, and all you have to do is execute at that point.
0: And so for people who, you know, that 20% is where it gets a little more challenging because most people aren't gonna know what to do there, and I think, you know, we don't have to go into how they can figure that out. They can go to your website, buy the book, and check it out, and get some actual workouts or some concepts they can understand, or they can hire a coach, you know, and that yep. helped them a lot too. But does this, so does this training concept apply to, you know, every level of athlete? Does it apply to, say, high school um, track stars and, you know, people like me who are just 44-year-old amateur, you know, not very good marathoners?
1: It really does seem to. You know, I, I don't want to be too absolutist about it, but uh, so this whole um this whole concept of 80-20 comes from the work of an exercise physiologist. He's, he's American, but he's actually based in Norway. Uh, his name is Steven Seiler. He wrote the foreword to my to my new book, The Triathlon One. And what he, and the, and what he did is he wanted to uh, rigorously quantify how the world's best endurance athletes train. So, you know, Tour de France cyclists and Olympic runners and, you know, the, the highest performers. He did. He just wanted because no one had actually done it, you know, it's like, you know, by the numbers, what are these? Everyone knows they train a lot, but he wanted to look at intensity. And what he found was pretty astonishing in, you know, because rowers don't have all that much to say to swimmers. You know, they're both on or in water, but, you know, they're two different endurance disciplines. And same thing with, you know, triathlon and and running and cross country skiing. But he's he found in sport after sport after sport at the highest level. People were doing about 80% of their training at low intensity, um, and then he looked at historical data and he found that that wasn't always the case. That there was this sort of uh, like parallel evolution that occurred as athletes at you know at, at, high, at the highest level in different endurance disciplines tried different things, and you know when someone did had you know discovered a method that worked better, they won a gold medal, and then you know everyone starts copycatting, copycatting, and then so over time the stuff that doesn't work as well is discarded. And if you go back long enough, there was some weird stuff that people did. <laughs> Even Olympians. Um, so you had this, you know, what's known as convergent evolution where, you know, what works, works. The human body is the human body. Um, and and so that was a pretty interesting discovery. Of course, the next obvious question is, you know, for every, you know, one Olympian, there's thousands of people like you and me. Well, does the 80-20 thing work for us too, right? Um, you know, uh, and, and so studies have been done to answer that very question. And the answer is a resounding yes. Um, now there, there may be a lower limit to it. You know, like if you're only exercising one minute a day or, you know, <laughs> any, any, it probably doesn't even matter at that point, <laughs> but for, for, for one study runners who trained on average only about 45 minutes a day, which is pretty, you know, that's, you know, you know, that's a weekend warrior type of, uh, of, uh, regimen. Even those people improved more on an 80 20 regimen, um, than, you know, on, on, in that moderate intensity focused way, most of us train.
0: So we've, so it <clears throat> sounds like it's, you know, it's kind of a, and I, I believe this, it's sort of a one size fits best a little bit. It, it, it seems like it, that the very, there's probably variations you could make on it and have some success, but, you know for me most of the people i work with are lifetime i want them to enjoy a lifetime of endurance sports being uninjured and and happy and not frustrated and fatigued all the time but so um does this training would it apply well let me ask you this so in an, if you're doing ultra endurance events let's say iron man training or um ultra marathons you know if you're doing 50ks 50 milers Does the ratio stay roughly the same for those? I've heard so many people who are ultra runners say, I don't ever need to do any speed work, any threshold work, anything like that. That's not for me. I just have to run a lot. Um, And then even, you know, for like amateur Ironman athletes, some of the ones that I coach, you know, they're working, they're training 12, 14, 16, 18 hours a week. 20 percent of 16 hours is a lot of pretty high intensity stuff for everything they're doing does it make sense for them to do that as well
1: yeah that's a great question so um, you know when when you get above that ventilatory threshold so that you know the the boundary between low and moderate intensity is is not that intense you you know what I mean it's you know for a typical person who who has some kind of fitness you're talking about 77, 78% of maximum heart rate. So when you, when you cross that threshold, you know, if you're running along and, you know, you cross from just below the ventilatory threshold to just above it, you're not working that hard. You know, it's, it's moderate. And there's a lot of room between there and an all out sprint, a lot of room to speed up more. So the question you're asking is, um, you know, how do you, it really gets down to how where you spend most of your time in that 20% bucket. All of the evidence we have indicates that, yes, Ironman uh, triathletes should do 20% of their training above that that threshold. But should it be mostly high intensity, like a a miler, a track miler? No. (laughs) You know, so you wanna be maybe just above it, uh, you know, kind of a a sweet spot. So um, not low intensity, but sustainably high. Uh, intensity um, and you know there's there's research on that as well and I, and I would say the same for ultra runners. Um, you know y- you don't need to be going to the track and and doing a lot of VO2 max work. You know just you know, just these lung scorching intervals. But you you if you're just jogging all the time, you're you're not getting the most out of however many miles per week you spend uh, training. Um, so I, I really do think. Uh, you know, the 80/20 thing is pretty close to universal in anything that's recognizably an endurance race. Um, but it's, it really comes down to how you, part, how, how you apportion your time spent in the 20% bucket that starts to, to matter a lot.
0: Well, I've got two more questions kind of on this 80-20 method, then we're going to move on to um, your the book that I've identified one of your books as my favorite book, so we're going to have to talk about that one today, too. <laughs> okay. Not, I mean, all your books are great, but that one's really my favorite, but let's keep talking about this training and uh, how important, you know, and, and how important is, and how should strength and flexibility and mobility be in training for endurance? I know in your books, you include a, in the 80-20 triathlon book, there's a I think the biggest chapter is about strength and flexibility and mobility training. How important is that for endurance athletes?
1: Yeah. It's one of those things where, you know, I'm, I'm a pragmatist. So if, if a triathlete came to me and said, okay, of these four types of training, I, 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 I refuse to do more than three. And the four are swim, bike, run, and lifting weights. Don't get me wrong, I'm going to tell a triathlete to swim, bike, run, and not lift weights. (laughs) So, you know, those are the most important. But strength training is is hugely beneficial. I'm a big believer in it. And also, you know, the kind of mobility uh, stuff as well. So, you know, I just think um, it's worth carving out a little time for – and uh, you know, I get it. You know, you're already busy enough. There's only so many hours of the, in, in the day. Um, but you know, I, I just you know, people have to make their own choices. You know, how it's a hobby for most of us, right? So, um, it, you know, I, I try to be you know, realistic and meet athletes halfway and and offer sort of minimalist options. You know, very flexible ways of, of incorporating the stuff. You know, I have um, what I call. Uh, TV workouts, which are just, you know, strength and mobility sessions that you can do while watching the evening news or supervising your kids doing their homework. You don't even have to change out your jeans to do them, but it's absolutely worthwhile. And, uh, you know, there's science showing that with with the strength stuff, a little bit goes a long way. Um, So, you know, obviously the pros do a lot, you know, they do, you know, highly, you know, periodized, fancy, um, strength uh, regimens that take up a lot of time, and that's 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 the Cadillac version. But you know, you, you don't have to. It's not all or nothing. Um, and so, we, in the book, I kind of sell people on um, you know uh, uh, options that are just realistic for most people.
0: And one of the ancillary benefits for me when I when I talked about my plateau in 2015, one of the ways I kind of broke out of that was actually. If you're, for those listening, my regular co-host Mike McElroy is sitting in on the podcast. Today. He's just surprisingly being quiet today. But, <laughs> but uh, Mike is all does a lot of strength and conditioning um, coaching, and he kind of helped me break out of that plateau. And one of the ways that helped me was uh, the more stre- not the more, but as long as I incorporated some types of strength training, I actually rec- I could run more. I could increase volume um, as long as I kept it you know relatively easy as long as I followed the, the right uh, method, I actually recovered more quickly from running and I felt like I it, it, I strengthened myself so much more, I could actually increase volume and, and do more than I could without the strength training.
1: Yeah, um, you know, yeah, I guess, you know, with, with people, if they don't know a lot about, you know, if if their idea of strength training is bodybuilding, you know, they might ask, what's the point? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I'm, how, yeah, I'm,
0: will bench pressing help your 5 K time? Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm trying to run a marathon here but you know so it's it's a it's a slightly different animal if you're an endurance athlete but you know there's studies showing that you know people who runners who are prone to knee injuries a lot of that comes from uh, imbalances in strength up in the in the hip area so I mean that's a case where guess what being weak is making you not be able to run at all. <laughs> So, so those, I mean, the, the benefits you get from strengthening strengthening your body, you know, can literally, you know, m- mean the difference between getting to the start line healthy and not.
0: And last question about this topic, when one of the things you hear a lot of people do, Mike um, has used the term, as opposed to overtraining, he says, are you overtraining or are you just under recovered? Um, what, how do people, what is, Recovery. You know, how should people recover from their workouts? Should is having to? I spent a lot of time in 2015 just trying to recover. I was because I was over. I was not. I was just overtraining. I was plateaued. So, what is recovery? When we say that, what do we mean, and what should that look like?
1: Yeah. So, you know, recovery and rest are two different things. You know, rest is just not doing anything. Recovery is uh, allowing your body to sort of return to equilibrium after that equilibrium has been disturbed by the stress of exercise. So you can recover while you're running. You know, if you're doing high intensity intervals at the track, to go back to that example, if you do a lap really fast and then a a lap really slow, you're still moving when you're doing the slow lap, but you are recovering from the higher intensity of of the previous lap. Um, Usually when you look at the, the longer term training process, recovery like fully recovering from The hard work you do because you don't want you don't want to just get back to zero You want to actually adapt to the stress you've imposed so, you, know, you know your body You know stress has negative connotations, but stress is exactly what makes you fitter, you know You do a hard run you you rest your body doesn't just go back to where it was before the run It goes beyond that point in a positive direction so that the next time you run you can actually do more that requires that you don't go hard every day. You now, for you know, last summer I had this interesting experience where I trained for uh, 13 weeks with a professional running team in Flagstaff, Arizona. And these are you know people who are you know trying to go to the Olympics. Um, and you know, a lot of them are running 110, 120 miles every week. They very rarely go a day without running, very rare, like maybe the day after a race or but, but they, they, they take recovery very seriously. So if they have a day when they only run eight miles slow, they're getting all the recovery they need from normally running 15, 16 miles a day, you know, a, a lot of that hard, hard running. So it's just about balancing hard days and easy days and then outright rest days so that your body always gets a chance to process the fatigue um, and then actually come back stronger. Um, And, you know, it's not rocket science, but you're not going to get it right if you just wing it. You know, there are certain certain tried and true practices that you have to follow to get the recovery you need.
0: As Mike and I have recorded or I've recorded podcasts before, we often come to that same conclusion. Like you just, for most people, if you really want to have a long term, if you want some longevity in your training, you know, I'm just talking weekend warrior amateurs like us. If you want longevity, if you want to remain injury free, if you want to enjoy it, you know you can't just wing it you know you you want to at the very least a training plan which at least guide you a little bit and then you have to start working on your intensity levels and we think of course we're coaches so we think the best way to do is to hire a coach but um, i like what you say about you just can't wing it because there's a lot of people that just try to wing it and aren't getting the results that they're looking for
1: yeah i mean because the sport seems so simple you know it's like it's running i've been doing that since i was four (laughs) but you know to 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 get the most out of the time you invest in it um yeah it's it's not as simple as it seems
0: well let's talk about um one of my favorite books that you wrote it's called how bad do you want it and uh this year, so this book um came out around i think when did that come out
1: 2014 okay, 15 I didn't I, mean, 15. I
0: didn't mean to put you on the spot let's just go with a few years ago Yeah, Um, but that book came out around the same time that I was really struggling with that plateau season of mine and Mike had listened, I think he listened to the book and we talked about it a lot and it it really changed, it came at a perfect time for me, it was powerful, it really changed my perception of things, how I approached and I'll say this, it helped me not just in training but it really helped me in life in general. Uh, I've had a couple of medical I've had cancer twice and I've just gone through all this stuff and these types of books and especially this one the lessons you give in the book and the in the real life examples tra- translated to me for real life first really and then kind of bled over into uh, my endurance training it helped me um, just change like I said my perception of how I approach so many things and it really I've tried to pass that off um, to my athletes and so, what is, if you'll, in your words, what is, how bad do you want it about, in general?
1: Yeah, so it's, you know, it's, it's about the psychology of endurance sports. Um, and, in particular, it's about sort of a, a new scientific model, uh, a new a, a approach to the psychology of endurance sports. It's a mouthful. It's called the psychobiological model. But that's just a fancy way of saying it it removes that phony partition between mind and body and sees them as just two halves of of a single coin there really is no separation between your mind and body Um, and uh, it's just you know there's some really cool recent research showing that what we perceive as our physical limits you know if you just try to run a certain distance as fast as you can or you know go as far as you can until you just can't take another step what you perceive as your failure point, where I just couldn't go any faster, I just couldn't go any farther, it feels like a physical limit. It almost never actually is. That, that we In endurance sports, uh, our, our, the primary limits we encounter from day to day are psychological. That doesn't mean the physical limits don't exist, it just means we get to the psychological limits first. So there's always a, a buffer there, there's always some space to work with. and. What you can part part of the journey of trying to improve, or or just get more out of, uh, you know, being an endurance athlete is to get try to try to master your mind, turn your mind into a tool rather than uh, like a a limiter, so that you're able to get closer and closer to your true physical limits.
0: So one of the quotes you had in the book that that exemplified what you just said, I think, was I'm going to quote you. So should have warned you about it's that. Better, it better, be yeah, better be good. It's quote, athletes who accept the unpleasant feelings they experience when working hard are less bothered by them than are athletes who resist those feelings and then they perform better as a result. Um, and I, that was one of the things that really, that translates to real life for me. But I, I think what you're saying there, you have to kind of change, you talk about this in the book, you have to kind of change your um, your relationship with perception of effort. Is that, is that what that's kind of saying there?
1: Yeah. There's, uh, another phrase I'd like to use in, in this context. Uh, and that is there's, there's how you feel and how you feel about how you feel, how you feel you can't change. You know, if you, if you get out and you're, you know, running a 10 K race and you're two, two K from the finish line and it really hurts, it really hurts you know it just does (laughs) but you can have different attitudes about that you know what i mean you can think it hurts but hey i've been here before it turned out okay i'm actually performing well i have a chance to have you know my best 10k time ever i don't care if it hurts or it's okay that it hurts that's one attitude another could be Man, this stinks. You know, um, you know, I'm really suffering out here. Why do I even do this? This is probably my last 10k. Like, I'm just gonna kind of coast from here. You know, those, both both athletes are hurting the same amount, but they have they feel differently about how that they feel, and um, it makes all the difference. You know, the, the athlete who just embraces how he or she is feeling is going to perform better. Simple as that.
0: And we were, I had. Um... Alex Hutchinson, who wrote "Endure" on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about similar stuff to that. And we were talking about um, negative self-talk and the and the the big impact of negative self-talk when you're when you're struggling through those times. And I, one example that we have here in Mississippi is it's incredibly hot and humid, pretty much all the time. It's just it's still ninety degrees outside, and it's midway through October. But um, one of the ways that I use that was I decided to change my perception of how I feel in the heat through the summer. and I just worked really hard to have more positive self-talk to approach it a little differently, to be a little more intentional about my pacing and my effort level, and really had to work incredibly hard to uh, to to do that. but it changed my perception of it. And I think that's one way that you can that people can use this book to to focus and be intentional about changing their, their, uh, their relationship with perception. And again, that translates to real life. Um, you know, if you have to go through some unpleasant things in life, you have to work on your perception or your relationship with that perception. Um, I'm going to throw another. Okay, so let's move on to, uh, I picked a couple of the chapters out in your, in, book, in the book, How Bad Do You Want It? Um, the first one I want to talk about was the, the name of the chapter is The Gift of Failure. And um, this was powerful for me because I I fail a lot. Like like in life, in my endurance career, I'm a a, a real failure, but um, not permanently. I keep trying. And one of the quotes you had in the book, I'm going to quote you again, was, in the long run, your failures will be even more valuable than your successes. It's one thing to try hard in a given race. It's another thing to cultivate the capacity to try harder generally or to be more resilient. And the most resilient athletes are those who fail often because they aim high, and whose response to failure is always the same—to try again. So you gave an example in the book about um, that failure and failing repeatedly is like walking on a bed of hot coals. Um, I really like your firewalk um, example. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. So that that uh, fire—I think almost everyone knows what a, a firewalk is. You know, where you're walking barefoot on hot coals and. Um, it doesn't go on forever, but the idea is that an endurance race is a lot like that where, um, imagine that the bed of hot coals at the end of it, there's a wall and that wall represents your physical limit, the best you can possibly do. There isn't a human on earth who can stand the heat long enough to get to that wall. That's the idea that we never actually touch our physical limits but you can find ways to get closer and closer before you say, you know, I've had enough and leap off to the side. Um, and so, you know, that, that, that heat you feel is, you know, the discomfort, the fear, the negative feelings, all, all the psychological stuff, um, a lot of it, you know, that that is processed through the body that just makes you want to give up, makes you want to slow down um, and, you know, just because uh, in your last fire walk, you, you know, leapt off early uh, doesn't mean that you can't get a lot further next time. And it becomes, you know, if you just sort of, you know, instead of saying, oh, I failed to get to the wall, you know, it's, it's just, it's never going to happen. There are people who that's their attitude, you know, but you know, the, the resilient athletes are those who say, Hey, if I can just get an inch further than last time, that is a success of a sort, you know? It's not, it's still failure to get to the wall, but nobody gets to the wall, you know? If I can just get an inch further than last time, uh, ultimately, that's really what you're trying to do, right? It's just find out how good you can be. Um, And, you know, that's the process you have to embrace.
0: Well, as someone who has failed so often, I keep trying new and bigger things, and I fail a lot before I usually accomplish them, that chapter really and the examples you use really uh, helped me out a lot and I thought it was really powerful so let's talk a little um, I have a like I said I have a training group and some one-on-one coaching clients um, but one of the ways one of the things that I like with a group is uh, is the group effect and you have a some examples in the book about the group effect so what is exactly the group effect and how can it how can people benefit from that
1: yeah, so um, I, I talk about a study in the book that involved rowers where they were required to do um, kind of like a time time trial test on uh, an indoor rowing ergometer, and they did the same test twice, once by their by themselves, and uh, another time with a group, where they're all you know uh, I think it was maybe eight of them all all doing the same test at the same time. And after both tests, the alone version and the group version, uh, the subjects were subjected to a test of pain tolerance, and their pain tolerance was higher after they'd done exactly the same physical test in a group context. And and that's a phenomenon that's known as uh, behavioral synchrony because you know we're social beings. You know you, you might be an introvert, but you're still <laughs> you're still human, and you and you are a social being, and so. Uh, we're affected by groups, and and uh, when, when you do, say, you know, like a hard workout with other people around you, your brain produces more endorphins, which are kind of the, like the runner's high chemicals. So you're, you actually can tolerate more pain if you have other people around kind of suffering alongside you. And if you can tolerate more pain, you can perform at a higher level. And so in the book, I talk about how that's probably a big part of the secret to – Kenyan dominance and distance running is that they're always training in groups, always, they don't do the lone wolf thing there. And so they just kind of, they feed off each other and, and push each other to higher levels. It's it, the typical assumption is that it's competitive, but actually that's separate. Like competition also raises performance, but cooperation does in a, through a, a different mechanism. So You can actually benefit in both ways from training and racing with others.
0: So in the future, as I promote my training group, I'm going to say Matt Fitzgerald said you have to train in a group, it'll make you tougher, so join my group. Is that okay with you?
1: Yes, it is, because it's true. Like, I mean, <laughs> the ex- exactly the same training program will be more beneficial if you do it in a, in a group.
0: Oh, that's good stuff. All right, so <laughs> another chapter you had was called What Do You Expect? It was kind of about expectations, and there were a few takeaways in there that I really liked, and um, one of them was, you said in there that believe, I think there were some studies that talked about this, but that believing one is, that a person, believing one is good at something can elevate performance independent of actually being good at it. Can you explain that a little bit?
1: Yeah, well, this, you know, that whole idea, you know, which is not scientific, it's just something we all kind of understand uh, from experience is that expectations can be self-fulfilling. You know, they they aren't always but like you know if you expect things to go badly they're more likely to go badly if you expect things to go well they're more likely to go well so um, yeah uh, so you know there's um there've been some interesting like placebo studies i, I can't remember if i mentioned any of them in, in the book but where <laughs> there's one where runners were given super oxygenated water before uh, a 5k time trial and they performed better than when they were given regular water. The thing is, they were given regular water both times. <laughs> 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 they were just simply told that the one water was better, and they believed it, and because they believed it, they ran faster. They were the same runners, they did the same test. The only difference was that an idea had been planted in their head that they were going to run better. So, I mean, it's, that's proof that you know expectations are self-fulfilling. You know, you, you're not going to make a successful career as an endurance athlete going around fooling yourself, <laughs> but like um, learning to uh, use the power of expectations to your advantage uh, can be powerful. And, and one of them that, that's sort of at hand for a lot of people is to really believe in your coach and or your training system. Um, so it's one thing to just train in a smart way. It's another to really buy in to what you're doing. That's why you, you, you'll see that with a lot of the really good coaches out there is that they're they, they really make believers of their athletes. You know, they, they tell them in this way or that, you know, we have the secret sauce. No one else has it. We, <laughs> and, you know, if, if everyone sort of buys into that, the, the, it could be the same training, you know, that everyone's doing. But it will be more effective because of that buy in.
0: And that's actually the next point I had, which you already covered. It was that in the book you say expectations of success regardless of the source um, improve performance and I, that that to me kind of um, led to almost a good coach if your athlete believes that that you're going to succeed or if your athlete believes that you think they're going to succeed if, if, if this coach says you are going to succeed you've done the training you're, you've done great and they actually have um, it's probably going to improve their performance um, so in the book, in this chapter, you talked about the audience effect, um, and this I always I always thought about this because often, and I've said this myself, and I've seen it happen to me, and I've said it to my runners. You know, I always say, well, on race day, you're gonna it's going to be different. You're going to feel great. You're going to feel wonderful. My argument always was, you know, you're building, you're putting all the building blocks of training together, and they're all leading to one specific point, but. Um, how does the audience, is the audience affected, how does that explain why some people perform better at races and as opposed to in training or why we feel like it's easier to do that in a race? And secondly, you know, how come some people, and this this was actually kind of Mike's question if I'm saying this right, but some people when it comes to competition day or race day seem to just knock it out of the park and other people, I think you use the term a little bit, choking mm-hmm. in the book, but some people really struggle when they come under that intense uh, pressure?
1: Yeah, so the audience effect is another um, another phenomenon that speaks to the social nature of, of the human animal. Um, so, you know, there's research showing that if you try to lift as much weight as you can, you'll actually lift more if people are watching you than if people aren't watching you. Um, because you want to impress people, like, you know, the, the pressure's on. Now, pressure can be a double-edged sword, and that's where choking can come in. People, an audience will tend to make you perform better if you're doing something simple or you're doing something you know you're good at. Um, It will actually tend to make you perform worse if you're doing something complex or unfamiliar or something that you don't have a lot of confidence in your ability to do, like... You know there are a lot of people who could easily um, stand up in their living room and read a speech but there are a lot of people who could not do that in front of an audience um, because they're not it's you know that's that's pressure causing them to choke Um, and so the same thing happens in the athletic sphere Um, you know when you know it can either work to your advantage or against you to you know like you know because I write books and and my name is out there I told you how I trained with this professional team last year, and that whole it was, you know, it was kind of an experiment that I'll be writing about, and it all culminated in the Chicago Marathon. And I actually went there and ran as a professional. Now I am not a professional. I was also 46 years old at the time, but I wore like a two-digit, you know, race number. I was on the start line in front of 40,000 people, like a Kenyan here, an Ethiopian there. Like way out of like where I was supposed to be. It just the race director made a special exception because he was kind of on board with what I was doing. But, you know, even though I wasn't, you know, a real pro, there were thousands of people who were who, who knew what I was doing and were going to know what my result was. So that was a lot of pressure. You know, I I, I I I knew if I failed, it's one thing to fail in a marathon that stinks. But I knew if I failed, I would fail very publicly. Um, and actually, you know, when I got out halfway through that race and it started to hurt, you know, you start to make, do that little internal negotiation. It's like, well, I could still PR even if I kind of coasted in from here. But then I thought, no, like I told people, I put out a certain time that I wanted to run and I knew that everyone would know if I didn't achieve it. And I, and, but for me, because I was ready. Um, and also because I'm experienced, I was able to use that to my advantage. So, you know, knowing I was being watched or accountable helped me perform better. But in different circumstances, it could have actually crushed me. You know, and it, it happens, it happens a lot.
0: So, is there any way people can, let's say, if somebody finds themselves going to competitions or going to races and they just perpetually are kind of underperforming based on, you know, what they should do? Um, considering their training. Are there any tools or methods that people can use to kind of overcome that?
1: There are, uh, you know, it's not the same, it's very situational. Like, of all the things I wrote about in the book, that's the one I get the most people coming to me to for help with. And I wish I could just say, oh yes, there's one solution and it works on everyone all the time. That's simply not the case. Um, in the book, the example I give, you know, each chapter, each one of those coping skills that I talk about in the book is is sort of anchored to a story and the story I tell in the book is about Siri Lindley, an American triathlete who was supposed to make the first Olympic team, uh, in 2000 and failed because of choking. But the very next year she was world champion because she figured out how to overcome it. And the way she did it was by p- taking the pressure off herself and just, it was actually through the influence of a very good coach. Um, who said, you know what? Just pretend you're retired. Let's get back to like you started doing the sport because you loved it. Let's just get back to loving it, working your butt off and just enjoying it day after day after day. And he did a very, very smart thing. Um, and again, I'm just giving you an example. This is not I'm not saying this is how it, this is the solution for everyone, but it's an example of a solution. So what he does, he had her just get really, really fit and work hard and just focus on the process and then he sent her to a race, her, her first race after her big disappointment. Um, and he, he sent her to the race after a really hard week of training when she was exhausted. Her legs were dead. Uh, it wasn't a super important race. She had low expectations. Um, she had every excuse for not doing well. And she crushed it. She had this you know, huge breakthrough. Um, she almost beat the, 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 the woman who at the time was the best in the world. And because it was just because she had she had taken all that pressure off herself and just focused on taking the next step, and then because she was really good, that wasn't the problem. You know, physically she was very capable. She just needed to put herself in a situation where it could just come out of her, and then the confidence was back, and then she could start to be ambitious again.
0: And in one of the chapters, I, I, the next one I had was you you talk about how caring a little bit less about the result of a race can produce better results and that's kind of along those lines a little bit she you, you know she probably cared about it but she had the her expectations were different because she didn't she didn't think there was any way physically she could perform i assume but
1: yes you know what you find with um with you know great champions like some of the athletes who just win you know, like the, the Mo Farahs of the world who's got like a million gold medals and just won the Chicago Marathon last weekend. Um, people like him, like he wants to win. He wants to win desperately. He expects to win. He's very disappointed when he loses. But there's one thing that doesn't happen when Mo Farah loses. He doesn't think he's a bad runner. That's what you want to avoid. It's, the, it's, it's when you, you – it's basically it comes from a kind of insecurity. Um, if, if you, if you're insecure just by, you know, by personality trait or as an athlete, you need to prove to yourself that you like too much is depending on the outcome. It's like, if I don't win, if I don't get a certain time, if I don't achieve my goal, I stink. But the champions don't do that. Like they want to win, but if they fail, they're full of excuses. <laughs> you know, it was too hot for me. My shoe was rubbing. they they still, I'm, I'm a great runner. You're like, I'll, I'll win the next one. And that's where you want to be, where you want it, but you have, kind of have a loose hold on it. There's a great quote uh, after the book came out. I wish I'd known about it before the book came out. But after the book came out, someone read it, and they shared a great quote from Bruce Springsteen. Uh, when he, he said something to the effect of when, when he gets on stage at night, uh, night to perform, he has to feel like what he's doing is the most important thing in the world. And at the very same time, he has to think, it's just rock and roll, man. <laughs> <laughs> that
0: seems like a pretty hard thing to balance, but some people can but do that's it. it, it yeah.
1: But it it can be until it's easy, you know. Like, because if you're in that zone, you get it. It's like, yeah, this this matters, but I also I can be loose. You know, you hear that in, in team sports all the time. You know, you know, before the Super Bowl, a reporters in the locker room, and they're like, "Oh, this team's loose. That's good." You know, it doesn't mean they don't care. It just means they're not uptight. It's like, you know, hey, we can have fun. You know, we can try our darndest to win, but also have fun with this.
0: And all these lessons, all these, all these um, examples in the book are, you know, most of them are from elite, super elite, really talented athletes. But um, it's important for everybody to note well, everything we've talked about applies to just, you know, the regular Joes like me. Um, and the people I coach and train. These same lessons, you know, there's kind of a running theme here between the 80-20 training principles and between everything and how bad do you want it, it kind of applies to everybody. And there's so many things that we can take away from the experiences of the of the elite, the examples you gave. And so that's why I really recommend, you know, this book to people who are really trying to find an edge and, and step up their training. Um, so let's Matt, I still have some more questions for you. One, I wanted to ask you, um, Eliud Kipchoge just recently broke the uh, world marathon record. And, you know, prior to that, he had done the Breaking 2 project with um, Nike. What were your thoughts on on both of those things?
1: You froze up on me. So I actually, I missed
0: that question. No problem. Let's try it again. So I was talking about um, Eliud Kipchoge recently broke the world marathon record. Yes. And also, you know, that came on the heels of the Breaking 2 a couple years ago. Um, what are your opinions on all that, the Breaking 2 project, and what are the chances, and his recent performance, and what are the chances of somebody breaking two hours in the marathon soon?
1: Um, you know, I guess, you know, I'm a huge fan of the sport at a professional level, and I didn't watch the Breaking 2 thing. Um, you know, it's, it's not like I'm a... a, a an uptight purist who said, "Oh, it's a sham. It's not a real marathon." You know, I, I think it was a cool experiment, um, but it didn't. It didn't captivate me. You know, I, I'm the kind of person who will get up at one in the morning to watch the London Marathon live if it's, you know, if it's got a good field or whatever. And and so you know, I didn't. I didn't make an effort to. To view that, I'm a big fan of uh, Kipchoge. You know, I think he's just a, a phenomenal athlete. Really, it's one of those people who's just kind of a an interesting human. <laughs> you know, there's some people you just like because they perform well, but he performs well, and he's just a, a fascinating dude. I think it's part of the reason he performs at the level he does. Um, so yeah, I, I, I thought the, I thought his Berlin performance was a lot cooler, um, but yeah, I, I don't see. Um, I don't see uh, the two-hour barrier being broken possibly ever. You know, everyone assumes it's going to happen. I, I, I wouldn't guarantee it. Um, you know, that, that's I, – I think that his 201-39 he ran in Berlin is going to stand for a long, long time
0: it's uh, it's awfully fast that's for sure So, <laughs> alright a few more things um, so if you could give only one piece of advice to amateur or inspiring beginning endurance athletes what would it be?
1: Um, put enjoyment first
0: I thought you were going to um, say buy my book
1: <laughs> can I have another shot at that?
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no it's uh, put enjoyment first because no matter what your goals are or what you think your goals are You're not going to achieve them unless you actually enjoy the activity of running or of, you know, triathlon or whatever it is you're doing. That's just a fact. You know, it's one thing to want to lose, you know, 10 pounds in 12 weeks or something, but who cares about 12 weeks from now? What about six months from now? What about two two years from now? The only way, you know, don't you want to have, don't you want to be getting results two years from now? Well, the only way you're going to be getting results two years from now is if you're still doing it two years from now. And the only way you're going to be still doing it two years from now is if you actually love the activity. So find ways to make it enjoyable for yourself, um, and the rest will come.
0: That's great advice. All right, so recommend for our listeners one book, other than all all, all of yours. We'll talk about those in a second, but just one book that you think everybody should read.
1: Um, I'm going to throw a... One out from left field. Um, it's called *The Hungry Brain* by Stephen Guienet. Um You know, there's I'm I'm a sports nutritionist. I've written a lot about nutrition, and it's just it's so tedious just how much noise and disinformation is out there, and um, and so I, that that book is one of the few um, that is kind of an antidote to everything else out there. It was written by um, uh, kind of kind of a neuroscientist actually he he looks at the relationship between the brain and diet and eating and and metabolism stuff Um, and it's just really cool if you like popular science and if you eat and care about your body weight you're gonna it's intrinsically interesting Um, uh, so yeah The Hungry Brain by uh, Stephan Guillenet
0: excellent so what's next for Matt Fitzgerald do you have any uh, new projects on the horizon
1: I do, uh, you know, I, I, I'm an idea factory, I'm always up to something, uh, so, you know, I just had this 80-20 triathlon book come out, but I've got another one coming out uh, next spring that I'm really excited about, it's actually a memoir, um, and it's called Life is a Marathon, Um subtitle is A Memoir of Love and Endurance, um, and so look for that next March.
0: That sounds great, well, I would definitely check that out, and maybe um, when that comes out, you can jump back on the podcast here, and we can talk about that book.
1: I don't know, I had such a terrible time, I'm not sure I want to
0: come back. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll send you like a thank you gift or something, that'll change everything.
1: <laughs> no, absolutely, I'd love to.
0: <laughs> That'd be great. Well, I, well, I was going to recommend all your books, but now I'm second guessing myself, I don't know. But in reality, so uh, Matt has, I, I guess you can go to, what's your website, Matt?
1: Uh, so my 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 website is mattfitzgerald.org. Uh, that's a good place to start. And then the other one I mentioned earlier is um, 8020endurance.com.
0: 8020endurance.com. So I have, for listeners, I have 8020 running, 8020 triathlon, racing weight, and uh, how bad do you want it? I think, Scott or Matt, how many, uh, how many books have you written?
1: Uh, if you include ones I co authored with other people, I think it's 25 ish.
0: <laughs> that's a lot. So people have a lot of reading to do. And I think one of the ones that I read a long time ago. Was you wrote Iron War about Mark uh, Allen and Dave Scott, didn't you? I sure did. So, Matt has a full library of books that are <laughs> that are excellent and great reads, and I would recommend all of them. Get 80/20 Triathlon now, 80/20 Running, and especially, um, how bad do you want it? So, uh, Mike Macro, did you have anything to add at the end of the podcast here? Nope. Thanks for letting me listen in. <laughs> you bet.
1: So, uh, great. Thank All right. You me there. All like right. Silent Bob.
0: Yeah. No. Silent. So he's. I'll, next time I'll let him talk a little bit. But. All right, Matt. <laughs> well, good. thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you.